is up, everyone? Welcome to another episode, this time a victory episode, and aren't those just so much more fun, of the Browns Note Podcast. This is episode 29 of the Browns Note Podcast. We head into week six of the 2015 NFL season. The Browns are two and three coming off a victory at Baltimore, and is there anything sweeter than a victory at Baltimore, at least until we get to things in January? And we'll get to all that hopefully at some point. But for the moment, we're going to live on the joy of that one, talk about the game coming up this weekend, and we'll do it in the course of the next 30 or 35 minutes or so. This is Ryan Burns coming to you from Dog Pound West in Orange County, California. We are joined this week, my man Brendan Leister, back in the heart of Ohio and back on the podcast. Uh, A scheduling snafu or two, or not snafu really, but... Uh, scheduling impossibilities, as we are both, you know, busy grown-ups now, and uh, it's good to have you back, man. How's things going out there? Things are going good. Uh, just trying to get another W this week. Try to get the 500. Um, everything's good, though. How have you been doing? Same. Yeah, uh, about to start trial in the real world. Um, so I am beyond busy. This is. It is now. What time is it right now? It's 7:34 in the morning, and where I am, so we're going at this thing early because I've got a full day of trial prep ahead and hopefully would like to get home to see at least a few minutes of some football, maybe some baseball tonight. But uh, why don't we keep it within the, the lines on what this podcast is about and get to our Browns after that win against the Ravens. It certainly, I don't know that it quieted too much of the criticism because a lot of the things that people were criticizing this team for and the coaches for showed their heads again in this game. But the things that I was particularly encouraged by this week, number one, McCown being able to go out there and continue to execute an efficient scoring offense. Um, I I don't think any of us had too many illusions about this being a high-flying circus act of an offensive explosive team. And yet, Their quarterback went out and threw for 457 yards, two touchdowns through the air, ran it in for another one. Thank God he didn't do that helicopter play again. And they were able to get out of there with a win despite the defense playing as uh, as poorly as it did. But but to me, even even though we're sitting here saying the defense played poorly, I mean, you look at the total yards, it was still the Browns by a huge margin, 505 to 377. The Browns had the ball 39 minutes to Baltimore's 29. To me, those are encouraging signs for a team that's trying to play ball control offense, even though they're doing it sort of unorthodox right now with the short passing game. And, and maybe that's not unorthodox in the year 2015 when New England plays ball control offense for years with short passing game. But I, what I'm getting at is it seems to me like they are progressing towards a model more like what they talked about at the beginning of the season. The offense is having to do it a little differently because the defense isn't playing as well as everybody anticipated. But it feels like maybe we're getting to a place where this team is starting to understand how it can win games by playing a complementary brand of football. Yeah, uh, we've seen the offense do a lot of the quick passing game. Um, it's not too unexpected, as though, of course, I don't think anybody expected the offense to kind of live and die with Josh McCown's arm. But, I mean, they are running a West Coast offense under flip. You think about the West Coast offense's roots and everything, it all goes back to the quick timing passes. That's what we're seeing right now. The Browns don't have a lot of big receivers. But they have a lot of smaller, quicker guys they can get the ball to. Uh, Duke Johnson's been a huge addition. He's, you know, he's been getting a lot of yards after the catch and everything. Travis Benjamin's been separating down the field, using that speed. You know, he's very quick out of his breaks, and he's been very sure-handed this year. Barnage has been great. Uh, 
you know, possession guy. He's been catching everything, um, even when he doesn't use his hands. And uh, Crowell's really Im- improved in the past game, too, I think. Um, he's, he's been showing good hands. He's been very good after the catch. And he's also been pretty solid in pra- pass protection, in my opinion. So we have seen the offense take some uh, take some strides forward, especially in the pass game, in spite of what many would say aren't the greatest weapons in the world. But I think it kind of gives them an advantage because defenses can't just key on one guy. They have to worry about a bunch of different guys and a bunch of different types of skill sets. So uh, I like what I've seen from the offense. Uh, the defense is another story. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll get into that in just a couple minutes because it is another story. And I have my thoughts about what it is we're seeing. I mean, obviously, five games in, you can certainly start to draw some conclusions about what you're seeing. I mean, that it's nearly a third of the season. And things need to start to get better if they're going to. Um, a couple of things you mentioned. Man, Barnage, talk about a revelation season for this guy. I mean, I think I, I remember him back at Carolina as the guy who was in there as the number two, number three tight end, as he would be behind a pro bowler like Greg Olson, for example. And he was basically in there doing, you know, those Chudzinski things when he's got those three tight ends on the field. He's doing a lot of blocking, the occasional leak out for a three-yard, you know, pass gain in the flat. And then to see him turn into, there were times over the past couple of years here in Cleveland where we could have said, hey, here's a guy who's a pretty decent little tight end, and he's a nice guy to have on your roster, and he's reliable enough when you have to throw it to him. Well, it's clear to me that he's more than that now. I mean, this is a guy who, he's never going to demand all sorts of attention from a defense because he's just not that dynamic a threat, but... The fact is, he is enormous, so that puts a pressure on almost anybody that has to cover him in the end zone. And number two, he's surprisingly quick in and out of his breaks. I mean, he's able to sink the hips, and the jerk route that everybody's seen the vine of by now uh, against C.J. Mosley, where he just puts Mosley on the floor uh, with, his, with his ability to, to make a juke and get outside and make the twist, and that's an ability that I think can really be underrated in a world where they're trying to do things quickly. So you have to have that short area quickness in order to get the ball to a guy like Barnage. And he just seems to fit what they're doing perfectly. Yeah, I agree. And I think he's actually a pretty good athlete when you consider how big he is and everything. I mean, he has very soft hands. He's shown the ability to separate. Uh, I think the tight end position more than anything is about feel and just understanding how to get open finding the soft spots in zones. It's like basketball. You know, sitting down in the right spot. Yeah, exactly. It, it's so much like basketball. That's why you see a lot of guys transition so well from basketball to football. And um, I just think Barnett has a lot of those skills. He's very smart and experienced, too, and that really helps him, I think, to separate. You know, he's. It, I'm pretty sure that he's probably a pretty good student of the game, too. Probably watches a lot of film of his Oh, opponent. I guarantee you. Under, There's no way you get to start yeah, under, in that position under these coaches without knowing what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And and while I'm a very uh I'm very critical of him as a blocker, I think he makes up for it now in the past game as we've seen. So um I'd like to see him a little bit less as an inline tight end on these run plays because I think that's a huge issue with the run game right now is just the guys like the tight end, the fullback. You know, they're missing blocks. Is it, so the Barnage issue, Barnage blocking, the issue's not, at least as far as I can tell, it's not an effort thing. It's just he's not real good at it. Is that fair? Yeah, I don't think he's, I don't think he's very strong at the point of attack at all. I mean, he's always been a solid pass blocker as a tight end, but, I mean, when he's your number one tight end, he's not going to pass blocker right. really. 
Right. When he was behind Cameron, he was a solid pass blocker. You could move him around to fullback and everything, but you're not going to have the guy, you know, drive block people and move them off the ball. That's just not his game. Uh, he also, I think, he kind of plays high a lot of times in the in the run game, and that leads to him not being very stout at the point of attack. Yeah, you know, one of the things I've been chatting occasionally this season with uh, with Pete Smith, who's obviously been on the podcast the last couple of weeks in your absence. Um, and I'm not talking about on the podcast. He and I have been back and forth on this on Twitter. Is it sure seems to me like with all the tight ends coming out of this draft, and this is obviously a total uh, side side road I'm taking for a moment, but it seems to me like they could still benefit from drafting the monster and having having Barnage be there as that number two. I, I think that would be ideal. I, I don't know that they'll do it because obviously they've got any number of needs yet. Um, but there, there are a lot of guys coming out in this draft that can make a big difference at that position. And so I think just sort of a teaser for the next several months, that's something we ought to be watching. How about, um, this is sort of an overlooked thing often in the football fan world. And I'm talking about, excuse me, special teams. How about the decision to keep Mr. Coons as the kicker who has thus far been perfect, drilled a couple of, you know, 40 plus yarders this weekend, including the game winner. And, uh, and frankly, they needed him because they, they only got three field goals in the first half, and without those, they're in huge trouble. And frankly, without Justin Tucker, who's obviously a great kicker, but without him missing one of the field goals during the middle of the game, the Browns can't win it. So to me, special teams played a huge role in this game, and they, they were just a shoelace away from getting, from getting Travis Benjamin loose on another return. really feels like that's an area of this team where, and, and to say nothing, of the unbelievable upgrade that is Andy Lee at punter. I mean, this this is a to me the special teams is a huge advantage area for the Browns going into most games. I agree with you. Um, I'm a big fan of Justin Gilbert as a kickoff returner as well. You didn't mention that, but I think he has a chance to be very good there, and he's shown some flashes of that so far. Uh, Travis Benjamin is as dynamic as it gets as a punt returner, as long as his confidence. He's not muffing the ball like he did last year. Um, you know, the punting and kicking game has been stirred up big time, you know, with Coons out here making all his field goals, Andy Lee flipping the field, you know, getting good hang time on his punts, not out kicking his coverage too much. Um, they've had a really strong unit so far this year. And I think another factor in this is when you think about it last year, it was a new regime and a new coaching staff. Uh, the new coaching staff wants their own guys. So you're going to have a lot of turnover at the bottom of the roster, a lot of new guys running down there on special teams. This year, you're seeing a lot of the same guys running down there on special teams that you saw last year. It's a lot of the same, you know, guys that have experience, guys that have been with Chris Tabor for a year, the special team. Uh, that's a big advantage for the Browns because they don't have a bunch of new guys, a bunch of rookies. You know, a lot of these guys are all experienced special teamers that are running down there covering kicks and you're seeing that uh really help the Browns when it comes to the field position game yeah you know and we probably have to acknowledge in here somewhere because I think sometimes we analyze an issue on a football team or in a football game or even a season sort of in a vacuum and we talk about well here here's where the problem lies and it's nice to be able to say things like um you know I'd, I'd like x y or z to happen more often on offense well, 
we're sitting here, we've just spent a few minutes talking about the advantages that the Browns have created for themselves via special teams. And you're talking about the bottom of the roster and saying, to me, what I'm hearing is, look, there are a couple of guys, maybe a handful of guys at the bottom of the roster that maybe wouldn't make this team other than for special teams, but they're all veterans. They're all going to know what they're supposed to do. And they're all very good at the special teams part of the game, at least relative to what's going on out there on an NFL field on a week-to-week basis. So to the extent that people think, well, this guy's not very good and that guy's not very good, why do we keep him over such and such? Well, the answer lies to me 99 times out of 100 in that special teams game. And I think it's hard to argue with the results they're getting out of that so far as a team. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, you talk about guys like Tank Carter, I know he played a lot of snaps this past week on defense for some reason. Yeah, that's not ideal. <laughs> yeah, but he, he's a special teams guy. You know, he's very good. Uh, Johnson Batamosi, I mean, he's played a few snaps this year at corner just because of injuries, but he is very good on special teams. Marlon Moore is another guy. He's very good on special teams. So you have a few guys that are all pretty good in that area. I've also seen um, Hausler running down there on special teams, and he stood out to me a few times. So you're seeing a lot of guys that, um, you know, veterans that are on the roster partly for their ability on special teams. Justin Gilbert's another guy that's flashed on special teams to me. So Justin Gilbert's not making an impact on defense right now or even offense, as some people have talked about, you know, and I don't see that happening. But he is making an impact on the coverage units, and he's making an impact as a kick returner. So hopefully he builds up some confidence, and hopefully that can transfer over to defense at some point for him. Yeah, I've seen any number of corners in the league that it takes a little while for them to get it. I mean, you might look at a guy, it's a different kind of story because Gilbert being the kind of prospect where it was pretty much his ridiculous athleticism and body type that allowed him to get drafted as high up as he was versus a Kareem Jackson, for example, who came out of Alabama as one of those Saban defensive backs and struggled a little bit in his first season or two to become uh, a consistent player, but has become an awfully good corner. And so... To me, I, I just think that's one of those positions where you got to wait and see, and I'll grant everybody all the criticisms because, look, it hasn't been pretty, and it's not good that he's not on the field, obviously, as a former number one pick. But I, I'm also not – I'm just not that inclined to freak out about it until it's over. And so I'll see what happens there. And ultimately, um, they've got a lot of depth at that position. That It's being tested, obviously. They're getting guys hurt left and right. Joe Hayden went down again in this game and going to be out for the game against Denver. Man, he's had a rough go of this season from a physical standpoint. He's just never been able to be right. And, uh, and based on the kinds of injuries he's got, you know, a rib and a, and a finger and all that, and now a concussion, I just I have a hard time imagining he's ever going to be fully healthy for the 2015 season. And that's one of the things as a team that you have to deal with. I mean, one of the stories so far to me of this entire NFL season, actually two of them, that have been – the Browns season is sort of a microcosm of what's going on all over the NFL is there are just so many injuries and a ton of penalty flags. And so I think to the extent a team is able to eliminate and get lucky on those areas, um, they're going to have a huge advantage. So that's, that's to me the kinds of things that I think a, a coaching staff can control, and I'll be looking for some progress there. Uh, you know, a couple of quick more things about the Ravens game before we look ahead to Denver. One of the things I have most liked about Josh McCown and that to me makes the overwhelming case that for the moment he remains the better option over Manziel and gives the team the better chance to win. I think what they're talking about is you look up and down the Cleveland receiving stats this weekend and let's first acknowledge that the Baltimore Ravens defense right now 
is not the Baltimore Ravens defense that we've all come to know and hate. This is a team that's not very good on that side of the ball this season. We just have to put aside any excitement about going up and down the field on them because everybody has gone up and down the field on them this year. Um, but <clears throat> the way the Browns did it to me is particularly noteworthy because they can do most of the things against any team in the NFL that they were doing against Baltimore because they're not trying to run these massively complicated plays. They're just, you know, they're, they're using the weapons they have. They're getting the ball to them in places where they can run with it a little bit, and they're being methodical about getting down the field. And so long as Josh McCown is responsible with the football, they can be dangerous enough. Um, you look at this receiving list, Gary Barnage caught eight balls, Travis Benjamin caught six balls, Taylor Gabriel caught four balls, Duke Johnson caught six balls, Andrew Hawkins caught seven balls, Crowell, who you noted is definitely improved in the past game, caught a couple of balls and made a really nice run on the 22-yard touchdown that was such a big play there late in the game. To me, the ability to distribute the ball efficiently and to numerous targets, this is what keeps, in a world where we don't have these massively dynamic targets, this is how you keep a defense off balance. As you spread the ball around, you take exactly what they give you, and you do it, and you say, thank you. I'll make the most of it. And that's what they've done as an offense so far. And I, you know, um, I look at that as an encouraging sign regardless of who the quarterback is because if Flip can train a Josh McCown to play efficient football, he can certainly train somebody like Johnny Manziel to play efficient football. And I'm looking forward to seeing the progress against that. When you watched that, against the Ravens, what were sort of the, if there were any, what were sort of the, you know, because my knowledge of this stuff from a, a, you know, an X's and O's and technical standpoint is very limited, but I'm wondering what you saw as an offensive coach um, in terms of what they were doing, you know, conceptually against the Ravens that was allowing them to just consistently be so successful through the air. Um, a big thing that they were doing was they were spreading the field, getting the playmakers in space, getting one-on-one matchups, and just asking McCown to basically find the matchup that's best and get the ball there on time. And that was what I saw. Um, they did a really good job of it. I thought McCown, he was accurate enough. Um, I, I still, I mean, I wasn't overly impressed with his accuracy or anything. There were a lot of balls where it's behind the receiver. It's, you know, it's not hitting the guy in stride, but it's enough. You know, if the guy finds the open spot in the zone or yeah. he separates. He's throws, still, he's I still mean, Josh McCown. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's not it's not an issue like with Brian Hoyer last year where he's missing wide-open guys. This is, you know, McCown's getting the ball there, but it's just not the optimal spot. So instead of it being an incompletion, getting the guy in stride, it's still, you know, 7- to 10-yard gain because you're just getting it to the guy. He's getting tackled. He's on the ground. But you're still getting the completion. You're still moving the ball. You're still keeping the offense on schedule. So while he may not be maximizing every single play, He's still getting the ball there, and he's getting, you know, enough out of it to keep moving the offense. And uh, and that was the biggest thing I saw. But I think uh, Flip's doing a great job of just scheming guys open and, uh, you know, putting McCown in spots where he can be successful. Yeah. How about the run game real quickly? Because, I, look, I think they obviously – Petten came out in his post-game remarks and said, look, we kind of knew we were going to throw it 50 times today because we didn't expect to be able to run the ball. And – for the most part, they weren't able to run the ball, and, and that was a reasonable expectation. Ravens still do a ton of good work against the, against the run. They've just been carved up in the pass game all season. And it, What is there, if anything, and this is sort of a, a, a broad question, but what is there to be done about a run game at this point in the season besides you know, keep working your plays, keep picking your spots, 
keep working the call sheet the way you would. Because to me, I, I do see improvement. Even though the numbers didn't bear it out this week, I see improvement in the way the plays are being run. I still think Crow is a little – his vision is lacking, basically, is the way I see it. But I do see the offensive line coming around. I see them gelling. I see them – you know, I see Mac getting, I, I think, healthier. Um, and so I, I'm curious – what you've seen sort of both offensive line-wise generally, but really tilted towards the run game. Because I think we can all agree the pass protection has been sufficient, to say the least. So in the run game, is there anything you can see that they can keep doing besides just kind of keep working at it? Uh, I think they just need to keep working at it. Um, I, I like what the offensive line has done for the most part. I think the biggest issues are that, uh, you know, like with a lot of offensive lines, you'll miss a block on a play and that results in a negative gain. You know, everybody else does their job. Every other individual in the scheme does a good job, but a block on a play results in, you know, a one yard gain instead of a six yard gain. And that's, that's a lot of what I've seen so far. Uh, like I mentioned before, I think the tight ends and the, the fullback and also the running back division haven't been great especially when Crowell's in there that's something I see uh that's something a lot of us see he he just he doesn't have the best vision when he sees an open lane he'll hit it but when he doesn't see one he'll just kind of run into the back of his offensive line or he'll bounce it when he shouldn't bounce it um I I just don't seem to lack patience to me for running that for running that outside stuff he's pressed up against his his lineman and when you watch like an Arian Foster run that outside zone I mean, you're going to see – it feels like it takes him forever to make his cut. But once he does, it's, it's boom, and it's right through a hole that apparently was there for him. And I think that's – to me, that's indicative of vision and, and just patience. You've got to know where you're supposed to be, but you can't get there too quickly. And, and he seems in a hurry to get where he's supposed to be all the time. And I just feel like that's one of those things you can learn, but it definitely takes time. Um, defensively, we're still talking about all the same struggles. You know, can't really stop the run. And, and this week it was actually, in my view, uglier than it had been in the past. Uh, despite a few plays that looked encouraging, I mean, look, they got pushed around up front, which I didn't expect to happen a ton. I know the, I know the Ravens' offensive line is really good, and especially the guy whose name I can't pronounce, Konecki Osemele, or however you say his name, but he's really good. He's the... Um, he's the right guard, if I'm not mistaken. They've got, or is he the left guard? Either way, their guards are ridiculous, and they created all sorts of problems up front. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm not real confident that the team can get a lot better against the run, especially if it can't get healthier pretty quickly. And, and it does still seem to me like they're just lacking the guys that that they need on the front line. I mean, and, and I mean, I guess specifically, I mean the defensive ends. There's been some talk about Shelton, and he's had some some tough moments. Certainly assembly got the better of him this weekend. I'm not, as I go back over and watch these games, I'm not real critical of Danny Shelton. I see a guy that's eaten a ton of double teams. I see a guy that a lot of times is in the backfield causing disruption. I see a guy, you know, he's never going to be the guy that makes a hundred tackles. That's just not his job. But I see a guy that as soon as he gets a little more consistent and understands kind of what blocking schemes are trying to do to him is going to cause all sorts of problems. What I don't see is the guys on the ends. Um, I, I don't know what it is, but it doesn't seem like they get off blocks or that they control guys when it goes outside. And I'm, I'm wondering what you see from a defensive standpoint. I mean, I know they're hurt and they're missing guys all over the place, but at the end of the day, this is still the NFL. And it does still seem like 
there are a lot of scheme issues here. And, and to me, it starts with personnel, and they're just not – they're using guys in ways that I don't understand. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think one thing they really – right now is athletic ability, especially at the defensive end spot that you mentioned. Um, they've been playing John Hughes a lot at five technique with Desmond Bryant out. Me personally, I would never want to put John Hughes there, but you know, with Desmond, Desmond Bryant hurt in and out of the lineup, um, like he always is, John Hughes has had to play there a lot. That's not the kind of athletic ability you want at that position at all. They don't have many guys on the roster that really fit that spot right now. Uh, they need to get that fixed in the off season. Randy Starks has been up and down. He hasn't really been disciplined consistently, in my opinion, staying in his gap, holding his spot. Um, and, and like I mentioned before, the, the lack of athletic ability. You just don't see guys penetrating in the backfield, getting off blocks, being violent at the point of attack. Yeah, there's no strength or it. quickness up front. It's not penetrating into the backfield. I love Danny Shelton, but if you're going to have Danny Shelton, you also need – two other extremely athletic guys up front with him. Right, when you're so talking about looking at... he can take out the at, double teams, and yep. the other guy can box and get in the backfield. Exactly. When you look at the way that Buffalo and the Jets have been successful with a scheme like this, or even going back to Baltimore, and the, the teams that play similar, you know, man press on the outside for the most part, giving their corners um, all kinds of responsibility and then trying to get after the quarterback with their front. I mean, those guys all – those teams all have people across the front line, and I don't think you don't run your system, but I do think, as you say, that those defensive end positions is, is still going to be a priority, and, and people are going to get bummed about that because they've spent a lot of time and resources on those defensive end positions. Obviously, Des Bryant, when he's there, is pretty good, um, but he's not great in the run game. And, uh -uh. and on the other side, there's really nothing to speak of. <laughs> you know, they, they need to get better at those positions, and to me – um, until you do, you're not going to be able to control the field. And, and that's critical to the way, at least until they have a quarterback that they're super mm -hmm. confident in, that's critical to the way they're going to have to play. Um, but at any rate, a good win at Baltimore because all wins at Baltimore are good wins. They're 2-3. and three. They've got an opportunity this week. We'll call it that. An opportunity and a challenge. The Denver Broncos, the undefeated Peyton Manning, quote-unquote, led, although that's not so accurate these days. Uh, Denver Broncos the hated Denver Broncos if you're my age because, boy, did this franchise take a lot of food off of our fanhood plate back in the mid-'80s, mid to late-'80s. It, it was a rough go for people of my vintage, I assure you. Uh, most of that hate <clears throat> has subsided. It's now directed mostly at their general manager. But as you look at this game, a couple of things stand out to me. Number one, this Denver Broncos defense – is not the Oakland Raiders or the Chargers or <laughs> or the or the Baltimore Ravens. This is the best defense in the NFL, and they're going to be missing uh, Demar uh, Demarcus Ware this weekend, and that is a big deal. But they're still loaded with talent. They're very fast. They're very good up front. They've got dynamic corners in Talib and maybe one of the top two, three corners that it feels like nobody ever talks about in Chris Harris, and you know T.J. Ward coming back, obviously a pretty good player, and. They're going to create problems. And then on the offensive side of the ball, <laughs> well, what, what do you need to say? If the Browns can't stop the run this week against a team that hasn't run the ball well, they're in trouble. Conversely, if the Broncos can't run against the Browns, they might be in trouble. I mean, it'll be interesting to me to watch the progression of the season coming out of this game, but, but specifically as to this game, you know, 
the Broncos aren't chucking it around the field for Peyton Manning. I mean, it, they're scoring that way, but it's not like it's not like the old days of how Peyton Manning used to just march up and down the field. I mean, they are having to put together, you know, methodical drives because that's what his physical ability allows them to do now. Now, his mental ability, of course, puts them in position to do all sorts of good things. And obviously, that's a big explanation for how you get to 5-0. and um, If you're the Browns, let's you know what, let's do it reverse of how we usually do it. If you're the Browns on defense, let's start there because if the Browns can't do something on this side of the ball, this game will never be close. Uh, I, to me, there's only one answer to Peyton Manning, and that is you have to get after, you need to get to him as quickly as possible, which has been a huge problem for the Browns. But number two, in this particular offense, I think you need to be physical with his receivers, and it's easier said than done, but you need to disrupt timing, and you need to do it early in the route because they aren't running a lot of you know, deep outs. They're not running things that take a long time to develop. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, any offense where Peyton Manning's a quarterback, especially now with his uh, limited, limited physical ability compared to the past, um, it's important to disrupt the timing of the offense. Jamming the receivers is the way to do that. Uh, I would say having some zone blitzes in there as well, dropping defensive line, bringing you know, seven guys up to the line and dropping three of them and only bringing four, making Peyton Manning unsure of who's coming, who's not. That's a way to slow down the off, get an extra half second where he's holding the ball, waiting a little longer for people to come open. And that just gives you one, you know, half a second to put pressure on him because a quarterback, I don't care who it is, whether it's Dan Marino, Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, whoever, if you hit the quarterback, you are going to impact them in a serious way. And as the game goes on, the more hits that happen, the harder it's going to be for that guy to keep getting the ball in the right so I think that's a huge thing for the Browns, but if they stop this run game, it's not going to matter. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. They've been pretty unsuccessful with Hillman and C.J. Anderson on, on the ground, and it's been a problem for their offense. Um, they have really been winning games on the strength of that defense. They get after the – you have no time in this in this matchup. You, McCown is going to have to be efficient. He's going to have to diagnose ahead of the snap. And that's a lot easier said than done. Wade Phillips is doing a really nice job with a bunch of big boys up front who can, who can occupy blocks. He's got a ton of linebackers who can just flat out run. And he's got guys that can cover, like I mentioned, with Tlaib and Harris on the outside. I don't think we should expect to see a lot of success out of the wide, out of the outside wide receivers. I think what they need to be working on, and fortunately this does to some extent play into what the Browns are trying to do. They're going to need to do a lot of the dump-off stuff, try and take advantage of the aggressive pass rush that the Broncos have. They're going to have to do some of that, um, you know, find Gary Barnage in a, in a hole stuff. I mean, they're going to need to manufacture drives against this team. This isn't a team that's going to give up that big play. This isn't a team that's going to let you go up and down the field. So you need to get in where you fit in against them. So offensively, to me, this is a game where they're going to have to be patient. McCown has to be super careful with the football because they have ball, play, ball hawks all over this defense. And they're just going to need – they're going to have to play their best game. And I think that means they're going to have to play – the numbers might not be as good, but they're going to have to play an even cleaner game than they were able to against, uh, against Baltimore. Yeah, I think uh, this is a big game where the Browns need to just take what's there and McCown can't make mistakes with the football when he's under pressure. Like we saw in Tampa Bay last year, sometimes when he's under pressure, 
And even this past week, yeah, he, he got, with he that got one pulled back. Yeah, back. he got lucky. <laughs> exactly. He has to keep his composure under pressure. Sometimes it's not going to be there. He's going to just have to take the sack, and they're going to have to punt. You know, that's the way that this game's going to be, in my opinion. The defense is going to have to finally hold an offense to a lower amount of points, and the offense is just going to have to do what it can to try to score one more point than the Broncos. Yeah. I think this is going to be a much lower scoring game than we've seen the past few weeks. Well, it better be. And the offense is, yeah, and the offense is just going to have to spread the field and try to get the ball out quickly on time. And if they can get a decent amount of production out of the run game for once, I think that could really help them. Uh, well, they have to. In this game, and then also, yeah, and also just moving forward, getting some confidence in the run game, because right now it just seems like it's so much of it's on the pass game. Yeah, it really has been, and, and obviously it's skewed because it's early in the season, but the bottom line is that it would be easier to accept that if we hadn't seen them struggle for, oh, the last decade and a half to run the football and to defend the run. So when you're consistently dealing with the same problems, and I know it doesn't make a lot of sense that – Every single regime would come through and have the same problems, except for that there's been so much change. Nobody's even gotten to establish the personnel and the systems to allow their teams to flourish. And I, I have no idea if this group will be successful in doing that or not, but I do see a lot of things I like. I mean, the way that Flip has taken control of the offense, I'm, I'm beyond convinced that he knows what he's doing. I am far less convinced, and I know you'll agree with me here, that Jim O'Neill knows what he's doing. And to me, that goes back to what we're talking about with personnel usage. I'm still not – Mingo must be hurt, and if not, they must not think very much of him, um, which is surprising given, given all the comments from last season when Pettin and O'Neill were talking about how their wives had made, you know, Barkevious Mingo cupcakes on draft day when they were up in Baltimore, hoping that that would be who they'd take. Um, I don't get – You mean Buffalo. Buffalo, excuse me, yeah. I, I, yeah. Don't, I don't get dropping – um, Kruger back in coverage all the time. He's got one thing he can do, and they aren't letting him do it, and they're asking him to do other things that he can't do, and I don't get that. And so, like you mentioned with Hughes, where he's up there playing that, that five-tech, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and I, I guess I'm wondering, look, I understand you're forced to do certain things by virtue of your roster constraints, and when guys get hurt, you can only do so much. Some guys are going to have to play out of position sometimes when you're missing as many guys as you are. But at some point, it becomes unacceptable not to fix the obvious. Um, and I understand that it's, it's easier said than done because the other guys get paid too. And like we th- we're talking about, Baltimore's offensive line is really good. They were going to run on the Browns. But I, I don't get – I don't it's – it's a lot harder to accept when you're watching guys like Paul Kruger drop into coverage and Barkevious Mingo, who you and I both think is still a pretty good player, even, even if he's not the pass rusher everybody had hoped he'd be. I don't understand what they're doing on defense. And in a game like the one they've got this weekend, that could kill them because Peyton Manning is going to stand back there and look at your defensive formation. He's going to get up there with 15 seconds at least to look at your formation. He's going to take a couple of dummy snaps so that he, he sees even more information when you show him where you're coming from. He knows what you're doing before he snaps the ball. And if he's able to pick up matchups like Tank Carter on – you know, Virgil Green, for example, we're going to get smashed because that's not that, you know, you can't just let Peyton Manning stand there and make decisions about what your team can and can't do. Um, And when you have not shown, as the Browns have not, the ability to get to the quarterback consistently, um, you got to think that's going to be a problem in a game like this. Yeah, I agree with you about personnel issues. I think 
Scott Solomon playing so little this year? What has he played, like 10 snaps or something because he's gotten hurt twice? Well, and he's, he's played done. very they, little. He's done. They put him on IR yesterday. Really? I didn't even see that. So that's a huge loss, in my opinion, uh, because he was going to play a lot, and Kruger was going to play opposite him. And I think they might have complemented each other a little better than um, Armani Bryant and Kruger have, just because, just from what I've seen, it looks like Solomon might be able to drop into coverage a little bit more than Bryant, as where Bryant is just forced to only rush the passer. It makes Kruger play that same position where he's forced to drop into coverage a decent amount more. Um, I, I just, I'm with you. You know how I feel about Mingo. I don't think he's a great player or anything. I think he's he was very solid against the run last year, in my opinion, and he really blossomed in coverage. And I think he could really add something at Sam. Yeah. And if I mean, you put it, him at Sam, it's nice to call him a bust. Spot. Yeah, exactly. It's nice to call him a bust because he's not, you know, Derek Thomas or whatever. But let's not fail to notice that there are other things that he's really good at. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's. It's fine. So let's use him some other way, and we'll. You look. That's the thing to me that Bill Belichick does every damn year that nobody, for whatever reason, not nobody, but not enough teams learn from, which is just give the guy a job that is to do the one thing he's best at and to do that all the time really well. That, it, I don't know why this doesn't make sense to more people, but it makes total sense to me, the way that football works and with as rapid as the changes, with as quickly as you have to digest information, with the, rapid, the rapidity with which you have to make decisions on the field as a player – if all you have to do is the thing you're best at, you're going to be so good. And that's what the Patriots do is they put 53 dudes out there who are only doing the one thing they're best at. Now, in a couple of cases, that's being a Hall of Fame quarterback and being a monster tight end, for example. So there's some fortune there. But guys like Darius Butler, guys like what Jabal Sheard is doing in that offense, they, or in that defense, excuse me, to me, that's what the Browns need to be doing. Why is Paul Kruger not just rushing the passer? Why is Armani Ryan not Look, just go get him. I, there has to be room in your scheme for guys to do what they do best. Yeah, I agree. Like, for example, if I were them, just from what I've seen, you know, they might have a different opinion of Mingo than I do and of pro fo- than Pro Football Focus does because last year they had him with a very strong grade against the run, for example, and they watch every single snap of every guy in the league. So I hold them in, you know, a little higher um, – what is the word? And then higher regard. Yeah, regard. Then you know all these other opinions of people that say that he can't play the run. Uh, I think that him playing Sam, you know, dropping into coverage a little more, rushing on a blitz from time to time, having Kruger play that rush end position that he played last year and got what 11, 12 sacks from that position last year. Him playing there, Mingo playing Sam, and Armani Bryant rotating it at that rush end rotating on the D-line, I think that's the best thing for the front right now. I know that they're trying to get Orchard in there more, which is fine with me. I think he should be able to back up Kruger and Mingo at both spots. But, you know, as we've seen, apparently they just don't think much of Mingo, which that's fine. They're the coaches. They're the team. They know him better than I do. But I'm just going with my own opinion, and this doesn't have anything to do with what I thought of him as a prospect because I thought he was going to be an amazing rusher. He hasn't developed into that he has what five sacks in his career yeah. but he's still in my opinion runs from the same position he can get hands on a tight end he can drop into coverage he can well, do the saved, things that he's that saved two to touchdowns do. already this season in coverage like flat out saved two touchdowns 
So uh, I don't know how we could just assume that he, or not assume, I don't know how we just decide that he's replaceable. There's just got to be a better way to use him. And the four snaps to me really just indicates he's got to be not 100% yet. And he had the knee surgery in the offseason. And of course, health is a big part of the Barkevius Mingo story. So it's, it's a fair complaint that, well, it's all fine and good to say he's a good player, but if he can't be on the field, it doesn't matter. And obviously I would agree with that. And so that's just another thing where, um, look, if you're going to talk about the team sucking, that's fine. But let's remember, this isn't the group that got you Barkevius Mingo, so you better just sort of start over again. <laughs> you know, you got to have to – at some point, somebody has to get more than a year and a half. And, and at the moment, I'm still thinking these guys ought to get some more time. So I hope we're not talking about firing at the end of the year. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see. Let's, before, we, before we get done here, I, I'm looking at this Broncos game. I'm not optimistic about it for – the reasons I've noted. I, obviously, the Broncos are just the better team. The Browns are missing Joe Hayden. I think that's a problem in a game where you've got a guy like Demarius Thomas. It, look, even with Peyton Manning struggling to be Peyton Manning, this is a team with a lot more explosive talent than the Browns. And um, I'm look, we're going to pick the Browns to win on this podcast, but I'll just tell everyone here I'll be pretty excited if that happens. Um, to me, the keys are going to be, number one, can they get to Manning at all? Because if they can't, I think it's going to be it, – it, it's going to get ugly if they can't get to him at all. Number two, can they show any semblance of a running game against a really good defense? I mean, this is a team that – I mean, if you become one-dimensional against the Broncos, Vaughn Miller is going to be living in your quarterback's face, and your quarterback's going to be throwing the ball to Chris Harris and Aqib Tlaib. So I, I am concerned about what I see as tough matchups all over the field in this game. So I will say that the Browns eke out a 17-16 to 16 win. I don't even know how I get to the 16 in this case, uh, but it sounds like fun, and I will take a one-point victory at home. <laughs> you stole mine. That was exactly what I was going to say. So, yeah, 17-16, one point. They find a way to just get that one point extra and win the game in the end. And in real life, I'll give the Broncos a lot more points than that. <laughs> but we'll see how it turns out. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll get fortunate. Look, may, they are getting better. It's not, it's not real obvious on the defensive side of the ball. But I, it feels like it's getting a little more consistent. And it's more about, uh, you know, well, we'll see. <laughs> Rose-colored glasses. Orange-colored glasses, as the case may be. At any rate, that is it for this episode of the Browns Note Podcast. We'll be back again next week. Hopefully after another Browns victory. That was my man Brendan Leister from the heart of Ohio. You can follow him at Brendan Leister on Twitter, please do. You can follow the podcast, by the way. We have a new Twitter account up. It's at the Browns Note. And uh, the podcast links should now be up and operational on um, iTunes, on Stitcher. And go ahead and hit me up at either place, at FTBL Sickness or at the Browns Note. And let me know if there's some other means by which you get podcasts and, uh, and would like them to be available where they're not, I'll, uh, I will effort that to happen. Brendan, my man, good to have you back. Good luck this week in your football games. Any final words for the good people before we head off into the sunset? Nope, I don't have anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he's the best in the business, ladies and gentlemen. We'll see you next week. This is episode 29 of the Browns Note Podcast. Please, can we get a win against the hated Denver Broncos? Pretty please? Woof! <laughs>